Let's come to new creation. And I want to come to it via uh, Anita's sermon last week where she spoke eloquently about creation groaning. And I want to just take us back there for a moment because we need to understand the groaning of creation in order to fully understand what an extraordinary thing it is when we cross over the horizon and encounter the new Jerusalem. And we're going to just look at a film first of all. And this is, if you like, the bad news that we need to really digest and become aware of around creation issues before we can get on to the good news of the New Jerusalem. So, Mariel, if you'd like to put that film on now, and I'll just begin to talk over it. So this is a, a film made by an American visual artist, Chris Jordan. It's about an atoll called Midway, which is in the North Pacific Ocean. It's about halfway between Hawaii and Tokyo. And um, it's an incredible breeding ground for albatrosses, uh, albatross chicks born on this island. Now, I need to give a bit of a health warning. There are going to be some distressing images coming up, okay? I'll give you a little bit of notice if you're of a sensitive disposition so you can close your eyes. But there's something extraordinary happening in this place. Because this atoll, and it's one of many, is in an area that Anita referenced last week, which is um, a gyre, which is basically surrounded by an area of discarded plastic about twice the size of Texas. Sorry, that's where you needed to close your eyes. <laughs> and this is what you see happening. The bodies of the albatrosses decompose the animals, the creatures actually can't survive because the adults have fed so much plastic garbage from the Western world that has accumulated in the ocean there. So this is toothbrushes, cigarette lighters, and so on. And about a third of the albatross chicks never make it to full adulthood because their stomachs are filled with the products of Western consumerism. So this artist has made a series of photographic displays to begin to draw our attention to this. And what he's saying, really, is that in order to engage with this issue, we probably need to start grieving and feeling some sense of shame that we tend to be anaesthetized from actually the damage that we're doing to creation. And that actually, creation is groaning, and until we start groaning with it as part of creation ourselves, nothing significant is going to change. That it's only when we go through feelings of grief and shame that we can come out the other side and begin to make more ethical choices. So it's a kind of prophetic image of fallen creation that he's drawing our attention to. Theologians talk about our desires and where we are aiming our desires. Are we aiming them in the right direction? Creation sets in place a whole series of structures which are intended to govern how we spend our lives and regulate our desires. But so often, what we do is we misdirect our desires. So, for example, um, Eden is filled with beauty, and God gives us the ability to craft and create artworks and so on. 
And we can either use that to glorify God, or we can use it in a misdirected way. So photography can capture truth or capture beauty, or it can be used to promote pornography. The creational structure is good, but the human use of it can be misdirected. And so what we're considering tonight is the way in which all our misdirected desires suddenly get reconfigured as we move on the other side of eternity into the new Jerusalem. The message of Revelation is that despite the mangled creation which we experience in the here and now, God is sovereignly in charge of human history. And God will bring history to a glorious end. The symphony that we're in, which is an unfinished symphony, is going to reach its triumphant conclusion. And that's going to include the complete correcting of all the ecological imbalance that we see at the moment. But before that happens, three things need to occur. And we read about them in Revelation 20, just before the passage we had tonight. The first thing is that Jesus returns. Nothing can be foundationally and fundamentally set right until Christ comes again. The second thing is is that the dead are raised bodily. And the third is that Jesus judges. And that as a result, some enjoy life in the New Jerusalem and some suffer final wrath. And so there's a double message here. The double message is that we are in a spiritual battle and that this side of eternity, uh, things aren't going to be set right. But that actually, through this kind of bloody birth that we see depicted in Revelation 20 and beforehand, the new creation will emerge. Something glorious will come through. And so the part of the word that I'm giving tonight is about the fact that we all play our role in this spiritual battle. We are involved in a spiritual battle. The New Jerusalem only comes about once Satan, death, and Hades have all been excluded from it. The fulfillment of the kingdom comes not through some kind of technological advance. It comes through a spiritual watershed. It comes through Christ coming again, sin being removed, Satan being overturned, then we can look into the face of glory. And so as we come now to look and consider what the actual New Jerusalem consists of, I just want to sort of remind you of what an extraordinary thing that is, that Scripture actually records this. Scripture could have ended with the epistles. But God vouchsafes us this vision of eternity, of the new creation. We've been granted that vision. We don't need astrology. We don't need futurology. We've been given an authoritative picture of the final creation in the words of the Bible. And what we see there is that God's creation is absolutely and entirely fulfilled. The new Jerusalem is what creation was always aimed towards. It it encompasses the recovery of God's purposes for creation. And it's not just about the reign of the king who has come to be with us, but it's also about his realm, his place. 
And so what I want to do now is just give you a kind of whistle-stop tour of the New Jerusalem and ask you to kind of come with me and seek to inhabit it as best you can. And then the third part of the sermon will consider what does the New Jerusalem mean for our placemaking here in this world. Now, the language of Revelation is imaginative. As you know, it depends upon allegory and metaphor and symbol. And so you're going to have to kind of use your imaginations now. But Revelation offers specific pointers about our final destiny, which are extremely important. In Revelation 21, verse 3, we read, They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There's no groaning anymore. Creation won't groan, we won't groan. There'll be no grieving. It's an incredible image of physical proximity that God will actually be there to wipe the tears from our eyes. I love this description by Julian of Norwich, who was a 14th century female mystic, which kind of captures this. She says, I saw our Lord as the head of his own house, to which he had invited all his beloved servants and friends for a royal feast. The Lord occupied no one special place in his own house, but presided like a king over everything, filling it all full of laughter and joy. He continually comforted all his beloved friends and made them glad with his warm friendliness and perfect consideration, and with the marvelous melody of the eternal love in his beautiful, blessed face. That's where we're all going. We're going to that banquet. We're going to know that intimacy and unity and communion with God. After all the desolation of the earlier chapters of Revelation, it's going to be a time of celebration, a place of celebration. And it's a specific place, and a place that we inhabit with resurrected bodies. It's not some kind of ethereal existence on a cloud. God's grand design is a city garden, It's a city without a temple, because as John says, the Lord and Lamb are now the temple. In other words, the presence of God is everywhere. The place is saturated and impregnated with his presence. Everywhere, to the deepest degree. The image that is described by John of the New Jerusalem coming down, it's in a kind of extraordinary light box of glass and gold. And in terms of the dimensions that we're given for it, it's a perfect cube, and it's exactly the same shape as the area called the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple, which only the high priest could access in order to encounter God. But now the whole city has become the Holy of Holies, and we don't need a high priest anymore. Revelation 22.4 says of God's servants, in other words, us, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Just as the name of God was on the forehead of the high priest as he went into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple, the name of God is now going to be on each of our foreheads. What an incredible thing. And our priestly, kingly role is described in terms of verbs of worshipping and serving God, stewarding this new creation. Isaiah, 
uh, earlier on in the Old Testament has spoken in chapter 11 about the way that creation will be reconfigured in terms of the non-human kingdom. You remember that a wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, and so on. There's an end to evolution as something predatory, the survival of the fittest. It's like everything gets rewired now, and there's interpersonal harmony. It's a place of community. John talks about the nations being gathered. It's a place with walls for self-definition, but it's a place with gates pointing to the four points of the compass and with all the nations of the world flooding in, just as they flood into this crossroads city in Oxford. And as I said, it's a city garden. It's not a return to the Garden of Eden, wonderful though that was. It's something new. It's a city, but there are the elements of a garden within it. It's not a question of going back to the woods, but it's about there now being a kind of perfect union between human society and nature. And this has huge implications for our ecological stance because it means we don't revere nature and despise humanity, and it means we don't elevate humanity and rubbish nature. We understand that their destiny are inextricably intertwined. There's a river running through it, but John also says the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. In other words, the nations will bring in their most um, holy uh, artifacts of culture and society. They bring stuff in with them into this city. That has huge implications for our culture-making here in this life. And it's a place of escalating glory. C.S. Lewis, do you remember he talks about it as like the summer holidays which never end? It just goes on getting better and better and better. It's not boring. We haven't reached a kind of full stop. So what does that mean for us now? Is that some kind of glorious vision across an unbridgeable divide, or does it have implications for our life now? Well, I want to suggest it does. I want to suggest that just as Karl Marx had a vision of a classless society, and that then informed his politics, so this glorious vision of the New Jerusalem needs to inform how we lead our daily lives. One of the most important aspects of the New Jerusalem is the fact that it is material. It is a specific place. Because that means that our relationship to place now matters deeply. There's a lot of continuity between this earth and the New Jerusalem. There's also discontinuity but there are a number of verses which I could take you through if there was time, which suggest that there's also significant continuity. It's a kind of renewed world, a kind of refined and transformed world. And we have roles in the here and now which can um, be refreshed in the light of this vision of the new Jerusalem. Revelation talks about 
are being renamed in this place. So I just want to say to you tonight, are you a lawyer? How about thinking of yourself rather than as a lawyer, as an upholder of justice? If you're a cleaner, why not ditch that expression and think of yourself as a repairer and renewer of dwellings? If you're unemployed, why not think of yourself as a seeker after opportunity? If you're a research scientist, perhaps you're more fundamentally an investigator of truth. If you're a counsellor, I'd suggest you're a healer of souls. Can we come out of the small way that we seek to define ourselves and our roles in life and actually live them in the light of the new Jerusalem? Well, I want to just take you now through five very specific examples of ways in which people have seeked to engage fruitfully with place. And I think all of these have uh, resonances for us in terms of how we might live in the light of the new Jerusalem. So if we could have the PowerPoint up now, Mariel. So this is the Gorbals in Glasgow. You probably know it. It's one of the most deprived areas historically in Scotland. Um, and in a particular place in it, uh, there was a medieval orchard, which um, in the 18th century became a cemetery. And then uh, about 70 years ago fell into a complete dereliction and it just became overgrown and um, a, really a kind of unused place. It became a place with a kind of forgotten story. It had been abandoned until about 12 years ago. And at that time, an organisation called the Artworks Programme began a conversation with local inhabitants and a group of artists. And working with community inhabitants, a local artist chose to restore this area as an orchard by planting 75 trees and 300 fruit bushes. And this is what they created. And she reintroduced all these indigenous plants and a lot of fruit plants, because actually the diet of the people in this part of Glasgow is so terrible that she felt actually they needed, she needed to do something about that. And so now, 12 years on, every year the local inhabitants collect the fruit and uh, swap recipes and tend the orchard. Now, for me, that's a kind of new creation practice. Here's another one. This is a statue of Christ called Eke Homo by the artist Mark Wallinger. This was um, put on display in Trafalgar Square. Uh, you may remember there were three statues in Trafalgar Square, then there's an empty plinth. And um, in 1999, that became a platform for public art. And this was the first display. So it's a statue of Christ uh, in white marble resin with um, uh, a barbed wire crown uh, in gold. It's a very kind of weak, vulnerable image of Christ. Not everybody liked it, but Wallinger's um, intention was to put it in this square, which is surrounded by symbols of empire, and to show actually that the power of Christ was that he undercut all of that. He spoke uh, in a different way, a different language. And so although Wallinger is not a Christian artist, he was making a statement about the incarnate nature of Christ. 
and actually about the role of Christianity in the public square by literally putting Christ on a plinth there. For me, that's again, that's an exciting approach to the tending and stewarding of place and space. What could this mean for us in Oxford in terms of how we might bless this city? And then on a more kind of ecological note, oh, well, there you see two other places that he's put that statue in a kind of prison setting and also in a, in a piece of woodland. But I want to take you now to this is Curitiba. This is Brazil's seventh city, which uh, has been described as the most ecologically developed uh, city in the world. It's got 52 square meters of green space per capita. There are 28 parks and wooded areas. They've got a municipal shepherd with a flock of sheep who trims the grass in all the parks. And um, there's an incredibly high quality of life in this city, Curitiba. Mariel, could you just uh, flip that on one, please? Uh, it's largely down to a mayor who's been in place. Uh, he's been re-elected three times in succession. He's now retired. Uh, but he just had a vision for this city. He, when he came to power, he was being asked to build more roads and wider roads in order to have more traffic in the city. And he said he wasn't going to do that. And instead, he created this great bus system. Uh, and the bus system actually carries 80% of the people who need to travel in that city. So there are actually remarkably few cars in comparison with other cities. And this place, it has its slums, it has its favelas, like any Brazilian city, but it also has a program where people in the slums can collect rubbish, and then the council pay for the weight of rubbish collected using fruit and vegetables. So basically, these slums are kept strangely and beautifully clean. What a wonderful thing to do. What a, just a great big idea. The city prizes learning and improvement. There are lighthouses of knowledge in the city, which is their term for free educational and internet centers. And today, the per capita income of this city is 66% higher than the Brazilian average. And 99% of the population say that they're fully happy with their city. I can't imagine that being said of any other city in the world. And then finally, this is um, from a piece of street theatre called The Sultan's Elephant, which happened in London uh, in 2006. Uh, it was produced by a European theatre company. And basically, it told the story of uh, an enormous elephant and an oversized marionette girl, uh, which kind of invaded the city of London and basically stopped the traffic uh, for three days. And Initially, there were just these things kind of burst into London, and there were only a few people who were kind of aware of them. But then, by the end of three days, this is what had happened. The whole city had turned out, had kind of reclaimed the streets. It's a wonderful image of play and celebration and carnival. And it's interesting that Revelation 21 and 22, the image of the New Jerusalem, it privileges descriptions of public boulevards kind of community, civic spaces. So for me, this is just another great celebration of place. But I want to just come into land. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. The marionette girl, she sewed cars to the road. 
um, they actually put in these kind of fake cars, uh, and it looked like she'd kind of sewed them to the road. So it was like saying, the traffic's got to stop, you know? Let's just kind of have fun and celebrate. Wonderful shalomic image. But just uh, a final thought. Um, there's an elephant doing what an elephant does best. I want to talk about homemaking and about our relationship to the places that we live in. There's a theologian, Calvin Seerveld, and he encourages us to start having a more healthy relationship to place and space in terms of our homes. So he's got some nice advice. He says, why not pursue one well-crafted thing for your home? Don't think that beauty is a question of great expense. If you look at the township dwellings in South Africa, uh, they have an astonishing uh, range of ex exteriors and interiors with beautiful colors. This is a kind of, just a, a simple way in which simple objects can really restore beauty to a house. He says, put homemade bread on the table instead of carbohydrated synthetic pulp from supermarkets. He says, have items in your home which are resources for spiritual renewal. So have a comfy chair which, you know, you can go to, which people know they're not to disturb you when you're sitting in. He says, find artwork for your home that evokes the spirit of the place. What I'm trying to say is that I think as Christians, too, too often we think of our faith and our spirituality in a very disembodied way. And that's not true to Jewish Hebraic theology, which is about being material people in a material place, blessing the creation around us. And the New Jerusalem is going to be a place in which we live in resurrected bodies and we're doing exactly the same, God hopes, stewarding and reigning and blessing the place around us. So I just want to encourage you tonight, as I complete, to not to inhabit the middle of the Bible story, which is where we've all been individually saved, if we've turned to Christ, but to actually begin to inhabit more fully the end of the story, which is a time where creation is redeemed and where we are intrinsic to that. Near the end of Revelation, we read, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And so that's what we need to do. We need to wash our robes afresh. We need to turn away from sin. But we also need to begin to develop a much more healthy relationship to the place that we live in. And it just seems to me that, you know, this is a season where we might begin to think much more creatively as a church, as an outward-facing church, about how do we not only seek to be built up here as we encounter God, but how do we take God out in order to bless our city and the communities around us?